Imagine being in the room. It's 1957 at a church fundraiser in Woolton, Liverpool, when 60, a 16-year-old guitarist named John is introduced to a 15-year-old bass player named Paul, and the two teenagers strike up a conversation about their mutual love for music. This meeting would eventually lead to the formation of a little band, maybe you've heard of them, called the Beatles. <laughs> and the history of music would be changed forever. Imagine being in that room. Like there's probably 50 people there, but now like 5,000 people claim to have been there. It's 1980 in a hockey dressing room in Lake Placid, New York. The underdog men's Olympic hockey team from the USA is about to face off against the best hockey team in the world from Russia. Coach Herb Brooks delivers the most epic motivational speech in the dressing room. Great moments are born from great opportunity, and that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we were to play them ten times, they'd probably win nine. But not tonight. Not this game. Imagine being in that room. Do you believe in miracles? What would it have been like? It's late November 1943, inside a private room in the Soviet embassy in Iran. And the three most powerful leaders on the planet, Franklin Roosevelt, Joseph Stalin, and Winston Churchill, are meeting in a room to discuss a military strategy that would enable the Western allies to gain victory. In World, in World War II, and to imagine a post-war Europe. What would it have been like to be in that room? You know, the books of history are filled with legendary conversations that took place in some really important rooms, conversations that shaped the world as we know it. Like as the saying goes, if these walls could talk... But if I could travel back in time in a time machine to any room in history to witness any conversation, I, I know the room. And I know the conversation. It was an early evening in first century Judea, the preparation day for the festival of unleavened bread. In a borrowed upper room just outside the old city walls in Jerusalem, 13 men are gathered to celebrate Passover together. And what will transpire over the next several hours in this room will be a conversation that will shape and change the world forever. What would it be like to be in that room? Maybe you can go there in your imagination to climb the stone steps leading from the front door and to enter the upper room. The last few moments of sunlight fill the only window. To like walk across the creaky wooden floor as the oil lamp casts dancing shadows on the brick walls. To see a large table that held the elements that served as a reminder of God delivering his people from Egypt. And then to gather 
with his closest friends, his ministry partners, his disciples at the feet of the master and to listen. What would it have been like? We are mere hours before his arrest and crucifixion. The shadows are growing darker. What will he do? What will Jesus say? Like he taught them so much already, but these would be his final words. His parting instructions. He'd done life with them for about three years, but in just less than 24 hours after this conversation, his lifeless body would hang on a cross. And then it would be carried to a garden tomb for burial. What is on the mind of the Savior in this moment and in this room? You know, it's a conversation that Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin called a window into the heart of Christ. And as we begin our journey here at Compass toward Easter over the next several weeks, we're going to enter this sacred space, the upper room. And we are invited. We are welcomed guests through God's word and by his spirit. We are invited into this incredible conversation. His disciples had spent many nights with him, but there was never a night like this one. This night was going to change their lives forever. And what we will witness in this upper room, what we will see into this window of the heart of Christ will fill our hearts with worship and it has the power to change our lives forever. Are you ready to enter? You turn in your Bible or on your device to John chapter 13. John 13, as we enter the upper room together, You know, the gospel of Matthew describes the events that we're about to look at, the events of this room in only 13 verses, Mark in only 19 verses, the gospel of Luke gives us just 31 upper room verses, but here in the gospel of John, we get five entire chapters devoted to this intimate conversation. The the other gospels kind of serve as a snapshot of what was happening from the outside to Jesus, But John opens up a window that reveals what was happening on the inside of Jesus. Oh, those walls could talk. Okay, to begin our series today, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses of John 13. Let's journey to the upper room together. It was just before the Passover festival... Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of them was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also should wash one another's feet. I've set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Okay, Jesus knows how to start a conversation. He's about to teach for the better part of five chapters, the longest continual record of any of his teachings, incredibly profound theology, but before he utters a single word, Jesus performs this prophetic action that not only sets up the rest of his upper room teaching that will flow out of this, it defines his entire mission. As his disciples had followed him, they'd watched him teach using many parables, speaking many parables, and suddenly at the very beginning of their time in this upper room, Jesus acts out a remarkable parable without saying a word. Jesus speaks volumes. You know, we live in a world full of information, yeah? Endless conversations about how to navigate life, how to find meaning and purpose, how to gain wisdom, like where to find truth. There are many rooms we could visit. There really are. And there are many conversations we could listen in on. So what makes this room so unique? What makes this conversation that we're listening to as we journey to Easter so important? We, we just read it, actually. In a simple act, Jesus reveals five things about himself that tell us why this room is worth visiting, why this room is unique, and why this conversation didn't just change the life of his disciples 2,000 years ago, but it can change yours. Firstly, the first thing I want to look at, Jesus reveals his divine nature. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, as he enters the upper room of his disciples, John echoes the same Jesus he described in the very first book of the, the very first verse of this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Okay, don't miss it. He climbed the stairs and he entered the upper room with his friends. He sat down and he began eating with his friends. But before we get too comfortable with Jesus, John reminds us again that this is no mere teacher we'll be listening to over the next five chapters in our series. This is no mere leader of a movement. This is no mere rabbi who'll be instructing his friends regarding their future. These aren't words of advice we're going to be listening to. These are the words of life. And this was certainly no victim that would soon be arrested and tried and hung on a cross. This is the living word. This is God with skin on. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity under whose power the Father had placed all things. He knew that he had come from God alongside whom he had ruled and reigned before creation, and he knew he was going back to God to take his rightful place. And this upper room discourse begins by revealing to us the nature of Jesus. The word is in the room. And the word was about to speak. Jesus, the son of God, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. So let's have ears to hear on this journey to Easter because the one leading the conversation we will be listening to in the upper room is the mighty God. And that makes this teaching we'll be listening to, this conversation, unlike any other. This room is holy ground. After he reveals his divine nature, Jesus reveals his, his leadership posture. Okay, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. How would you finish that sentence? I might say, and so he took a place of honor and authority, rightfully being served. Or Jesus performed some amazing miracle to show that he held power over everything. Let's see what he did. Okay, imagine you were there. The great I am, the living word of God, conscious of his divine origin, equal with the Father in terms of majesty, glory, position, the one who had all things under his power, stands up. Every eye in the room fixed on him. And he begins to disrobe. He takes a servant's towel and he, he slowly wraps it around his waist. A waist that deserved to have a king's sash wrapped around it. What's he doing? He fills a basin with water. Surely he's, he's not. In one, of, in, in one of the most shocking events the world has ever witnessed, God begins to wash the dirty, calloused, stinking feet 
of men. What is going on? Okay, surely Jesus was doing more than simply removing dirt and sweat. What is happening here? Author Sinclair Ferguson rightly points out what is happening here. Jesus is symbolically performing Philippians 2, 6 through 9. What Paul describes theologically there, Jesus actually acts out physically. John 13, Jesus, knowing he had come from God, Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, John 13, he got up from the meal. Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. John 13, he took off his outer clothing. Philippians 2, he made himself nothing. John 13, he wrapped a towel around his waist. Philippians 2, taking the very nature of a servant. John 13, poured water into a basin. Philippians 2, he humbled himself. John 13, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Philippians 2, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, foot washing was a a regular practice in Jesus' day, and it revealed the societal pecking order. Foot washing is actually servant's work. A towel and a basin of water, they are servant's tools used only by slaves and the lowest of the low. The lower class washed the upper class's feet. The disciples would have, from time to time, had their feet washed by people, people that had a lower societal status. But they'd never had their feet washed like this. Teachers do not stoop at the feet of students, never. No exceptions. You know, not much has changed, really. (laughs) Like, we might not wash literal feet in our cultural context, but we live in a world where figurative foot washing happens every day, a world structured by a leadership posture of domination, of control, of money, of power, beauty, and position where the lesser serves the greater. But in this upper room, Jesus radically reveals the posture of real leadership. He shows us a glimpse into the heart of God. You know, Jesus still washes dirty feet. He takes dirty feet that have walked places they should never have walked. The mud of sin caked on like cement. He takes tired feet, feet that have journeyed for far too long, searching for meaning and answers and finding none. He takes calloused and bruised feet, damaged by kicking the rocks of hurt on this path called life. And the king of heaven gets up, takes off his robe, fills a basin of water, and washes our feet with his mercy and love. There is no road that you've walked down so dirty that Jesus can't make your feet clean again. See, that's the kind of leader whose words we're going to be listening to over the next several weeks. That's incredible. 
Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss a single word. And so let's have ears to, to hear on this journey to Easter because the one leading the conversation we're going to be listening to is such a humble leader. The God who chooses to stoop down. Okay, as this opening scene unfolds, Jesus reveals his divine nature, his, his leadership posture, and then he reveals his mission. This is like just an incredible exchange between Jesus and Peter, beginning in verse 6, in which Jesus reveals his mission. Like, this is why I came. This is what it's all been about. Jesus heads directly to Peter with a towel and a basin of water, and turmoil fills the room. Okay, Peter is in utter disbelief about what Jesus is about to do. Put yourself in Peter's chair. Peter understands that the servants wash their, the, the master's feet, not the other way around. In fact, in verse 8, he cries out, no, stop. Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And then Jesus says to Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter, friend, I have to wash you. Or you have no part with me. Like, why Jesus? Why this way? See, washing Peter's feet was a foreshadow. It was a living parable of of what Jesus was about to do 24 hours later. I know you don't get it now, Peter, but you will. Keep watching. Keep tracking. You think I'm suffering humiliation now, Peter, by taking up this towel and washing dirt from your feet? I'm, I'm about to go to a much lower place of humility. Tonight, I take off my, my outer clothing. Tomorrow, my clothing will be taken from me, ripped off my body. I will be stripped down as they drape a purple robe of mockery around me and place a crown of thorns on my head. Tonight I pick up a towel. Tomorrow I'm picking up a cross. Tonight I pour water into a basin to take away the dirt that has soiled your feet. Tomorrow... I'm going to pour out my own blood to take away the filth of sin that has soiled your soul. See, Jesus is pointing to a washing, a salvation that can only be found in him and must be experienced personally. Peter, unless I wash you, you actually have no part with me. See, this is more than a stubborn disciple refusing a radical action by his teacher. It was an acceptance or rejection of Jesus' mission of redemption. There is no spiritual cleaning unless Jesus washes us. Okay, although foot washing was not a common practice in the context of, it was a common practice in the context of the story, 
It's not such a common practice in, in, in our culture. Maybe you've had somebody wash your feet, maybe not, I don't know about you. But it's a very intimate, it's even a humbling thing to have somebody do to you. It can be pretty jarring and challenging thing to receive, to allow someone to stoop down and to clean the sometimes unpleasant part of our bodies that we often keep hidden. Like having your feet washed is an act of submission that can feel really uncomfortable. And it can be a humbling thing to, to bring our unpleasantness and our hidden things before Jesus and admit that we, we need him to make us clean, actually. To kneel before a man on a cross and say, I, I can't save myself. I need you to make me clean, Jesus. And so we look for other ways, right? It's what we do. Maybe if, maybe if I scrub hard enough, maybe if I work hard enough, Maybe if I try this, maybe if I try that, I know I, I can make myself clean before God. But Jesus says, unless I wash you, you actually have no part with me. Like, you have to submit to this way. There is no other way. You have to lay down your pride and allow me to clean the hidden things. The shameful things, the dirty things. You can't clean sin, no one can. This is why I came. And in the most indescribable and incomprehensible mission of love, God came to us as a human being, took the form of a servant, suffering the humiliation of the cross so we could be made clean. And that's something we all have to accept for ourselves at one time or another. We all have to sit in Peter's chair. It's the only way. Right, still missing the spiritual lesson, Peter goes on, he responds by saying, then not just my feet, Jesus, wash my hands and my head as well. Peter would have automatically linked Jesus' teaching to, to the Jewish ritual of washing of hands, which a person would do over and over, as soon as you woke up in the morning, before and after every meal, before praying, the washing of the head was supposed to be the first thing, part of the body that you washed when you were bathing. But Jesus assures Peter that the cleansing that he's going to provide will make him clean forever. In this simple act, Jesus reveals the most profound truth. Let's have ears to hear on this journey to Easter because the one leading the conversation we'll be listening to is the only one who can save us. And then I love this. Jesus reveals his exaltation. You know, the word exalt is a word that simply means to elevate or to raise, to promote. Jesus has just knelt before 12 men, including the one who was about to betray him. Wow. And washed their feet. And in verse 12, it says, after doing this, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Okay, the phrase John uses here to put on is the, the Greek word lambano, which means to take up. 
It's the exact same word John uses earlier in his gospel when Jesus is talking about his resurrection. And he says, hey, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have the authority to lay it down and take it up. Don't miss this. Jesus humbly washes feet, and then he will lambano, take up his clothes, and return to his rightful place. And then in a few hours, he would humbly die on a cross. Three days later, Lombano would take up his life. And then he would ter- return to his rightful place as the king of heaven. Man, here in the upper room, Jesus is finishing the passage from Philippians. John 13, he put on his clothes and returned to his rightful place. Philippians 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. Jesus reveals his divine nature. He reveals his humble leadership posture. He reveals his saving mission. He He reveals his soon coming exaltation. And then as this opening lesson ends, Jesus reveals the implication for for us. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, (laughs) you also should wash one another's feet. See, Jesus didn't just perform this radical act to paint a prophetic picture about who he was and why he came, although he did. This section could have ended quite easily right there after Jesus got up and took his place. And in some ways, that would have been much more comfortable for us. But the story actually continues with Jesus giving really clear implications regarding what his followers had just witnessed Like, if I and my divine nature can serve you, surely you can serve one another. If I can leave my place in heaven to stoop before you and do the most humiliating thing, surely you can leave your places of status and comfort and kneel before each other to forgive one another, to love one another, to refresh one another, to serve one another. Surely. Jesus demonstrates that love is far more than an emotion. It is, in fact, an action. Can you serve without the expectation of gaining anything in return? Notice they didn't wash Jesus' feet in, in return. Here's a challenge. Can you serve those who maybe don't deserve it? You know, Luke's description of this conversation had the disciples actually arguing with, amongst themselves over which one was the greatest. It's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. They, they didn't deserve to have their feet washed, but Jesus washed them and served them anyways. Jesus knew what Judas was about to do, And yet he bowed in front of his betrayer and he washed him. Hey, we we have entered an upper room together today. And over the next several weeks, we're going to eavesdrop on the most fascinating and important conversation maybe in, in history. But why should we listen? Why should we invest? Why should we keep coming? 
What makes this conversation so special? What makes this room more important than any other room? Good questions, legitimate questions. Hey. Because without saying a single word, God speaks. Through the most simple yet amazing action, we learn that this is a conversation we simply must hear because of who's in the room. Because of who will speak to us over the next several weeks as we journey to Easter, he's divine. God is in the room. He was in that upper room, and he'll be in this room through his word and through his spirit. God. And yet he postures himself, and he leads with kindness. The humble shepherd is in the room. He came with a mission. The only one who can save us is in the room. And God has exalted him to the highest place. The king of heaven is in the room. And what he's going to teach us over the next six weeks will have direct implications for our lives. Our example will be in the room. And so welcome. We are his guests. His words have all authority and power. And as we head to Easter, he's about to speak. Welcome to the upper room. Let's pray. Father, at the very beginning of this journey, through this season of Lent, as we journey to the cross, as we journey to the tomb, we first journey back to this upper room to hear the words of Jesus. I pray that over the next several weeks as we listen, you would use his words to transform our hearts to direct our lives, to impassion us for mission, but above all, may this journey make us fall deeper in love with Jesus. Fill our minds with truth. Fill our hearts with love. Fill our mouths with praise. All for the glory of Christ. Amen.